Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Who's Who of SAU. This is a podcast brought to you by KALA Studios at St. Ambrose. It introduces faculty and staff from SAU in ways listeners may not know, whether that would be a hobby, something they do in their personal life, or interesting things they've done in the past. I'm your host, Ryan Sandness, and today I am joined with communication faculty member Alan Savelle. If you want to introduce yourself and your relation to St. Ambrose, uh, whenever you're ready. Thanks for being here. Um, Well, I'm Alan Savelle, and uh, I'm an assistant professor of communication. I've been here for, geez, um, since the spring of 1986, actually the winter of 1986. And I teach journalism courses, speech courses, and media and society. Now, I've had you for plenty of classes, and I've, I've, you've told us a lot of stories, um, especially stuff that really sticks out is, uh, you know, when we were all in quarantine, really, and we, we would meet on WebEx, and a big thing that you would talk about was just how unprecedented the times were and how just you didn't know what was going to happen, and you kind of related that to your college experience. So I kind of wanted to start off by, by just saying, like, you know, college students are confused about their future, you know, whether there's a pandemic or not. And you sort of brought that up, um, you know, when you were graduating from college, you didn't know what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just sort of take us through like you were a, you were a nomad of sorts across the United States. You've, you've well, I was, but um, one of the things that I do remember in the spring was when all of that shut down, when I was a freshman, um, that was in the spring of 1970, and um, the war had been ramped up by Nixon, and there were secret bombings and all this stuff. And once we found out the secret bombings happened, there were a lot of protests, which then led to led to um, the incident at Kent State when um, uh, four students were killed by the National Guardsmen, and um, several others were wounded, and students went nuts and there were more protests and nobody went to class and schools got shut down and we were basically sent home and so I remember feeling kind of lost and wondering you know what's going to happen am I going to get credit and are we going to be able to go back to school in the fall I mean there was that similar feeling so that's what I was trying to express that you know Maybe not a pandemic, but there was. There's always right. stuff going on. Right. I mean, when you least expect it, um, you know. There's that old saying: "Expect the unexpected," which is impossible to do, but don't be surprised when it happens. But yeah, when I graduated, I had an English major. I had been a journalism major. Um, been encouraged by. an editor during an internship to change my major because he thought I did not have the makings of a journalist. So I switched schools, switched my major and became an English major and English lit major. Um, So when I graduated, I I was a good reader. I could read things and interpret things and pretty decent writer, but I didn't have any skill really. Um, And so... I, and I didn't think I'd fit in an office at that point because then people were wearing leisure suits. Right. That's a joke. But yeah. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, I wandered the country. I mean, I, I got jobs. I'd go where a friend was, and if I liked the area, whether it was in the friend of mine was in Jackson Hole. So I went out there and visited him and um, skied a lot and got a job on a crew putting power poles up on the uh, Wyoming-Idaho border. Um, you know, a friend of mine was in Sun Valley. I went over there, and again, I skied a lot and got a job at a terrible radio station, but more importantly, at a ski boot factory where I made ski boots. Um, and I went back home, and I worked at a golf course, and I loved riding the golf course with an early uh, form of a headset that played music, and uh, I really enjoyed that. But after five years, I was getting older, and I needed to yeah. get a job. So that sort of brings me into the next question. Like, how did you stumble upon Iowa and the Quad Cities from, you know, the East Coast or <laughs> stuff like well, that? Yeah, I, would, I, I was out in Wyoming working out there, and it got colder, and the work was getting harder to find, outdoor work, which paid pretty well. I think I was making, like, 10 or 12 bucks an hour. This is in the late 70s, so... Um, but I decided to go home for Christmas, and I'm driving back in a beat-up old 69 Volkswagen that I had to park at the top of a hill to jumpstart every time. And a friend of mine was going to grad school at Iowa, so I stopped in to visit him and see if he wanted to ride home for Christmas. He said yes, but it's going to be a couple days till exams are over. Can you hang out? So I hung out. And I started wandering around the campus. And one day, I wandered into the journalism building. And I'm going down the hall, looking at, they've got pictures of their famous journalists. Uh, Carol Simpson, who used to be anchor on ABC News, is up on the wall. Um, Tom Brokaw had been a student there. He only lasted a year, but they had his picture up on the wall. So I'm looking at those pictures, and a professor pops out. Can I help you? And I said, no, no, I'm just... The next thing I know, we're in a deep conversation. We're back in his office. He's making me coffee. We're chatting. He wants to know what I want to do with my life. And um, pretty soon he's convinced me that I need to come back out to Iowa the next fall and go to grad school and get my life back on track. So it was just a chance meeting in the hall with this guy. And I also have to give credit to my friend who was here because while I was back in Connecticut, he made sure... My application got through, and you know I got an assistantship, which helped pay for it. So yeah, so you worked. You said you worked at grad school, like to to help pay through it and help live there and help do everything. Yeah, when I got here, I mean, people who have gone to grad school know this. Um, when you apply, if you get in early enough, there are jobs, whether it's you know, teaching freshmen or jobs in a lab or something like that, but they dry up. And I didn't get accepted till a couple of weeks before school started. So when I got out here, it turns out the job that I thought I had wasn't going to be there, and so I was going to have to pay full freight. But after about two weeks, one of the professors told me that there was a job in the public relations office of the university. And it was a broadcast job. And so I beat it over there, and I did it. I worked there for free for a couple of weeks, but then I got hired. And my job was uh, 
if something happened in the news, say something happened with Russia or something happened in Hollywood, like John Wayne died, I would grab my tape recorder and go over and interview a um, uh, political science professor about Russia, uh, a theater professor about John Wayne. I mean, that's what I did. I'd find a story that was in the news, see what a University of Iowa professor had to say about it, interview him. I'd come back and write a story about it, cut up the tape into a bunch of sound bites, and then put them on a newswire. You know, now I would have, these days, I could put them on the Internet and send them out to all the radio stations. But in those days, we had a cart machine that a station in Shenandoah could dial into, or an Olwine, or Humboldt, or Odiebolt. Any small town radio station in Iowa could get a soundbite with a professor from the University of Iowa. That helped them because it made them seem like they'd gone to the University of Iowa. And it helped the University of Iowa because we were getting our name out all over the place. So, And yeah. we also had science, prof- science reporters, all these different reporters. They would record their interviews, give them to me, and I'd cut them up. And I got pretty good at editing yeah. tape with a razor blade. So you've... You made your way over to Davenport and to Moline specifically with uh, WQAD, uh, yeah. Activate News. Yeah, when I, uh, <laughs> I liked graduate school. It was a lot of fun because I was getting paid. It paid for my apartment. It paid for my car. It paid for my beer. And um, I only had to take a class or two at the same time. So... You know, I was supposed to only last a year, year and a half, but I stretched it out to two years. But finally had enough credits to graduate, so I started looking for a job. I had a job offer in a small radio station in Austin, Minnesota, um, at, for $10,000 a year, or Moline uh, at WQAD for $12,000 a year. So I thought... Moline seemed like a bigger place, seemed like more money, and it was television. So I went for that. All right. And, you know, you, you have a, uh, a YouTube channel that I, you're kind of perhaps a little bit bashful about for people to see. But uh, it shows, you know, what you got up to there. And it was, you know, feature reporting, TV packages of just the odd, the unusual, the eccentric. Um, what was, what stood out, like what was a favorite story of yours what what did you like the most about it well yeah i eventually became the feature reporter and about that youtube channel i started that youtube channel because people i did stories on would occasionally put up stories once youtube came out they put up stories that i had done in them and they weren't always the best so i i wanted to have a little curation and so the stories I put up there are the ones that I like. Right. They're not just random stories. But when I got to Channel 8, the first thing I did was I worked weekends, which is good because then you don't have anybody leaning over you. Um, but the first year, I was basically a beat reporter. I covered Davenport. I covered Scott County. I covered the Bettendorf Cops. Um, and I did that. But So I was the hard news reporter but occasionally there would be a story on my beat that just called for not a straight reporting. It needed a little bit of an angle. 
And apparently enough of those pleased the management that they said, you should do this all the time. We should have you doing the goofy stories at the end of the news, the heartfelt, the sad, the happy, something with a little emotion at the end of the news. So I started doing those, and um, I liked it. But I, And for several years, I did them five days a week, trying to come up with a good feature story five days a week. Uh, can be kind of draining, and so some of them are not going to be the greatest. So after a number of years, I got to do them. Um, while I was on a magazine show, they were longer, and I did two a week. And then when I went back to news, they were three a week. So I do them like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But when you ask about favorite, eh, that's kind of hard. Um <laughs> I, I guess the most memorable one, well, one of the things that I liked the best was I got sent out to do the final day of MASH. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a new news director. When these change news directors, it's always kind of scary because you don't know, you're not in a union, you don't have any job security, there's no tenure at a television station, a broadcast station. Somebody could come in one day and say, I don't like the way you look, I don't like the way you sound, I don't like the way you write. (laughs) One or all of the above, and you could be gone by lunch. Put your stuff in a box and get out. Um, So we got a new news director, and for some reason he thought I was terrific. Um, It didn't last, but initially he thought I was terrific. And uh, at the time, he made me the entertainment reporter. So I did stories on music festivals, musicians, and things like that. And at that time, in the spring of 83, MASH was going to end its long run as one of the most popular television shows in history. And he said I should go out in Hollywood and do a story on the final. So I went out and heard it was a union set which meant that a union set, they shot film, MASH is shot on film. Most, I don't know if I'm going too deep in the weeds here. No, but. it's interesting. <laughs> but by that time, most television shows were shot on videotape, and you can really see a difference in the way they look. If you watch the old MASH shows, it's got a nice, warm, grainy feel. Um, so I heard it was a union shop, and they only would let film people on it. So I had to find a film person out in Hollywood to shoot it for me. So I get out there, and there are like 100 reporters covering this thing. We got to go all over the set and everything like that, and then had a big press conference later. And I was the only one with a film camera. Apparently for that day, they let the rules go, and everybody else had video. And I was kind of pissed because I could have shot more. But it really worked out well because if you ever look at the series, there's when I use clips of the show and then clips of me and my stand-up, I'm on film and the show is on film and there's not this abrupt switch. On one shot, a couple of shots, I go to um, Loretta Swit is winning an award at a Hollywood thing and I cut back to her in her role as uh, Hot Lips. And you can really see the difference. And Jamie Farr, I ran out of film, so he's on videotape. And it, it's obvious. Yeah. So that 
that thing stood out. And I put that on my YouTube channel. I've got over 100,000 views on one of them because there are a lot of mash nuts out there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was kind of cool. I got a couple of questions in at the press conference. Um, I've still got the big reels of film down in my office. And it's kind of interesting. I didn't realize how many questions I got in. I got, because um, there were all these 100 reporters from all over the country, and I'm just yelling out questions because it's just like when I'm teaching a class and I ask, has anybody got anything to say? And there's this pause. I mean, I didn't let it pause. I mean, I just yelled it out um, because you might not get that chance again. So right. it was cool. Um, another one I did that I really remember, there was a kid out in Makokota who, um, Keith Kroos, I'll always remember this kid, tremendous courage. He had a disease which stunted his growth, and he looked like he was seven or eight when he was really 18 or 19. And uh, he was the team manager of the basketball team out there and did a really nice story with him and uh um, not a happy story or a funny story but a story of courage which yeah i was pleased with right so how'd you find out about saint ambrose like it looked like you had an interesting job with channel eight like how did you know you stumble upon saint ambrose in davenport well I mean, I, obviously, I was aware of St. Ambrose living here and mm -hmm. reporting here, and I'd done a couple of stories over here. But how I got here was I'd gone upstairs to Channel 8 to get a cup of coffee, and I came back down. I walked into the newsroom, and one of the reporters was holding a phone over her head and was yelling out, does anybody want to teach a course at St. Ambrose? It starts on Wednesday. And and you got to have your master's degree. And I went, oh, well, okay. So I said, well, I'll, I'll take it. So I grabbed the phone, and it was Father Shepler from the communication department. And I think it was on a Monday. Um, I may have my days wrong, but it was like two days later. And so that afternoon, I drove over. Father Shepler hands me this 600-pound or 600-page uh, textbook, and says, here, this is the textbook for the class, and. They hadn't taught the class in a couple of years, so I walk in there, and there are 35 kids in the TV studio. And um, My preparation for the first day was, well, I'm Alan Savelle. I'm a reporter at Channel 8. I'll walk in. They'll ask me a million questions. They're college kids. So I walk in, and I say, hey, I'm Alan Savelle. I work at Channel 8. Got any questions? Dead, Dead silence. silence. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the class lasted about five minutes, oh, and I... Man sweating like um, buckets um, so I had to start I learned I better prepare for class and uh, I realized teaching is not easy and um, yeah I really get a kick out of movies television shows which show first year teachers as these brilliant intuitive geniuses at teaching and I I just shake my head I thought Jesus I, I, I'm still learning 30 some odd years later right how to be a better teacher. And I think this was the area that uh, was sort of uh, mentioned to me by someone who may or may not work as the operations manager here, but uh, he was your, in your first year as a professor, correct? Yeah, Dave Baker was uh, was in my class. I think he was a sophomore. Um, it's really interesting, that first class, I'm still in contact with several of the 
people who were in that class. And I still remember a lot of the names from that class, yeah. Dean Otte and uh, Frank Contreras and, uh, um, and Dave, uh, you know, yeah. And Dave was a good student. Yeah. So, yeah. And he, he sort of mentioned the dynamic between, you know, himself and his, you know, fellow friends as communication students and you know someone who was a reporter out in the field there was sort of this intimidation factor that they you know dave had seen you on tv would look forward to seeing you on tv and then he gets to your class and you know you're trying to teach him the ways of you know how it is in the real world and i know from like my experience with uh working for or doing stuff with dateline and everything it's it's not the easiest thing to do to work on deadline and get everything done. You know, it's something that you have to learn. And there was sort of this intimidation factor. And, you know, perhaps that came from, you know, people knowing who you were. There was, was there sort of a celebrity status that you had? <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> uh, no, probably only with Dave because, you know, college students are too busy to be watching the news every night. There's only kind of a nerd like Dave right. would have been watching the news. So I didn't think 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds were, you know, stopping their day and, you know, turning on the 6 o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news to see what I was doing. So, no, and as a matter of fact, it got frustrating later because when I was writing a media column, um, you know, in the 90s, you know, about the subject my students were taking, um, they weren't reading the column. I mean, it's one thing not to watch um, the 6 o'clock news every night, but if your professor is writing a weekly column in a paper, which can be grabbed and saved and read at any time, you, I would think you'd do that so you'd know what he was thinking. Yeah. Whether you agree with it or not, you've got some... Uh, it gives you some information about what that person is thinking so so no i'm not under any illusions that students are were seeing me as a celebrity then or now did you ever you know go out to like the grocery store or something you know from your time at eight or something and people would recognize you or was 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 it sort of small enough where that wasn't necessarily the case um yeah that happened and it's kind of interesting. When you're a kid, or I think when you get into this business at the beginning, you kind of want a little celebrity. You think that would be great because people are going to call you with stories and things. Um, it's a pain. And and I was just on a couple times a week, and people would, and I'm not saying it happened a lot, but it would happen. Like at dinner, somebody would come over and talk when you're out with your wife or your family and they would sit there and talk. One guy sat down at our booth. Um, I still remember that. Um, but I really, the anchors are the ones who really get it. I remember right. I was in the store one time, and I'm coming down the aisle, and I see Paula Sands coming up the aisle, and we look at each other, and we say hi, and I start to talk to her, and then I said, oh, okay, I'm doing it. I'm bugging you. You're here. You just want to shop. She laughed and said, yes. And I said, okay. And I just kept walking. I mean, we could have, I wasn't being a fanboy. I wanted to talk to her about how things were going and all that. Right. But I realized she gets this 
all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's funny when people say to me, oh, I saw so-and-so, they're really snobs. They wouldn't even say hello or whatever. It's like, you know, if you're getting bugged all the time, and we're really small time. I can't imagine what it would be like if you were really a celebrity. I mean, somebody who, you know, was on national news or, um, yeah. So you do get recognized, but um, it, yeah, it's yeah. not that big a deal. So needless to say, I think uh, years have gone by since then. Um, <laughs> perhaps there's there's a little bit of, like, mellowing out, I'd say. Maybe a little bit, but uh, sort of to go back, you know, with that intimidation factor from what Dave saw, I mean, I sort of felt that way a little bit with media writing when I had you for that class where, you know, it was, you wanted the best for us. You wanted to, you know, teach us, you know, to be the best writers that we could be and sort of that would come off as, you know, him being really picky, him being really choosy. And you would you would preface the class sometimes with like, I may I may seem this way, but I it, it's not my intention. So I guess this kind of relates to another uh, project of yours called A Boomer Life, um, sort of like a, a, a website, if you want to go into that a little bit. Well, let me finish that thing about... <clears throat> being picky um i am so much more mellower than the professor i had or uh for broadcast news writing and media writing i mean in those days they would correct things with red pen which is scarier right i think (laughs) and they would i mean this one guy would basically call me a moron i mean i saved them you know I've told you a million times not to do this, you moron. He would write that on the paper. Um, Luckily, that was in grad school. (laughs) And I had a little bit, just a little bit more confidence in myself. Um, It stung, but I didn't want him to keep writing you moron on the paper. Um, And sometimes I wonder whether I should be a little more aggressive because if I see a repeated mistake um, it's like are you learning I mean in chemistry if you have a repeated mistake things keep blowing up Um, so maybe I should blow things up but yeah you got to be picky because you're going to send your work out hopefully in front of thousands of people I mean if I'm successful and you're successful if I'm successful to make you successful, you're going to have a big audience. And so you don't want to make mistakes in front of a big audience. Better to make them in front of me and then have me yell at you right. than make them out in front of a lot of people. Um, the blog, I guess that's what it's called, um, A Boomer Life, basically what that started as, um, I... I had a blog. I had this WordPress set up. I decided I better learn it because students, you know, need to know this. So I need to learn it so that they can do it. And I set it up, I don't know, five or six or seven years ago. And I only occasionally would put something up there. And then I thought, well, I really need to get serious about it last year. I think it was 2019. 
And so I started putting up, started writing my life story. Yeah. And um, I'm big on people knowing their family history. Um, and I think everybody should write a family history for their children and it could be saved. Because once you leave this earth, your kids will remember you, but maybe your grandparents will only remember you as this old person, and then their kids may not remember you at all. So I thought, well, my father-in-law did a family history or his life, so I thought, well, I'll try this. So it was kind of fun. I mean, I'll, I wrote about my parents. I wrote about myself growing up, and I am uh, did the high school thing, and I put pictures in there, and... Um, I learned how to do a podcast, and there's a podcast plug for a podcast. Mm -hmm. Only got five or six likes. Right. <laughs> I like more. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm up to the beginning of college, and this summer I hope to work on getting through college. There's yeah. a bunch of stuff that happened. I haven't gotten to the protests. I got, I got heavily involved. I went to college as a uh, fairly uh, far to the right kind of character, and. Um, changed a little bit and by the end of the year I was involved in organizing some of the big protests on Boston Commons um, I think that was kind of common with Vietnam though with like kids in college especially and there was yeah I mean you know each, yeah but you you mentioned you you got serious about that last year like with WordPress and everything and you know my first guest was first guess was that you know the switch towards online and, you know, sort of a switch from instead of being, you know, the in-person, you know, paper and stuff like that, it would be online, technological and stuff like that. So what made you really get serious about doing everything? Well, I had written those, I don't know, the first 20 chapters um, already. I mean, I'd, I'd written them... <laughs> I, I decided in 2010, the spring two of 2010, I had stopped my column um, several years before. I really hadn't written anything. I'd done radio. I filled in at WOC in the summer of 2007 and the winter of 2008. I did the news there. But I really hadn't done any professional writing in years. And I thought, you know, I'm kind of I'm losing my edge. I'm teaching it. But I haven't done it in so long. And so I decided to join my students that spring and write. So I'd get up every morning at 4 o'clock and write for two hours. And at first it was drudgery. Um, but within a week or two, I couldn't wait for the alarm to go off. And I'd race downstairs and get on the computer and just write, 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 write. And when the 6 o'clock bell rang, it was like, ah, nuts. I'm having a great time. Um, things are flowing. Ideas are pouring out of me, and I'm, I was having a great time. So over then, I did that all that spring, and it, I think I became a better teacher because of that. I understood the students' frustration again. Um, you know, when ideas didn't come, and then when ideas did click, what to leave in, what to leave out. I mean, it just, I was so glad to be doing it again. And then I, over the next couple of years, I edited it, rewrote it, and printed it out when I was finally close to happy with it being done. I once asked an art professor here, how do you know when you're done with a painting? 
uh, Art, uh, Les Bell. And Les said, um, it's when the show, when you've got to bring them to the show. So he said, you're working on them right up to the last minute. And then when the deadline is there, you got to hand it in. you got to put it up on the wall. And I didn't have a deadline, so I kept tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. And I printed out some. And then the year I decided to do the WordPress thing, I thought, you know, this is a deadline. I've got to publish it. I'm going to tell everybody I'm going to do one a week. And so I did that. I said, I'm going to put one up once a week. And then I'd rework that one over and over and over again. And then on Friday, when I was going to publish it, I'd hit send and send it. Yeah. And then I did that every week that summer. And then last summer, I did it every two or three weeks. It was a COVID. I just... Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have the heart. Right. So but, I... You, it sort of sounds like it, it fits the, the eth- ethos that every writer should really have of just, you know, writing for yourself, not for, for anybody else. And I sort of, that's kind of the, the art form and the, the beauty of expression, I guess. You know, you just, it's something you need to do for yourself to be satisfied, you know. Well, okay. So there's some things there. Um, you know, I always say you got to write for an audience, Um so I, I am writing for myself because I'm enjoying it because I'm, <laughs> I think I'm being witty. <laughs> um, but it is, it is very, fairly clever, I will say. There you go. But I'm also aware there's an audience out there. And I tried to write some stuff about my family earlier when my parents were alive, and I kept censoring myself. I kept going, oh, what will mom think about this? Oh, what you know, what will my dad think about this? And so I wasn't as free. Some people don't worry about that. And, oh, God, I admire that ability not to care about what other people think. Unfortunately, I, I care about what people think, so I censor myself in a way. Um, but I am aware of the audience. And like one, oh God, I wrote one chapter about high school that I made some comments. And one of the girls that I went to high school with who reads it, she's a woman now, <laughs> my age, um, said, you know, she thought that that was pretty mean the way I had stated something. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, you're right. I mean, I had. I had used kind of my 1960s brain when I put it the way I put it. Right. And it could have easily been changed and not said in the way I said it and still had the same meaning. Which So I went back and did that. So, yeah, I'm writing for myself, but I realize there's an audience there. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of want to go into the subject matter. You said, you know, it covers your life and, you know, you being part of the baby boom you know there was historic events looking back on that you were really a part of and one of the things i wanted to talk about was uh woodstock mm-hmm. you were uh you know a resident of the east coast and for the longest time i thought it was a california thing by like the historical you know part of you know what it looked like um but when i found out that it was just in this like upstate you know rural new york it was like this doesn't look right you know because history had sort of played it that way you know so what was sort of what was your interactions with the summer of love 1969 
Well, actually, the Summer of Love was 1967. Oh, okay. Yeah, that and actually, the what you may be thinking of is the Monterey Pop Festival, which happened okay. in the, that was the first one. I went. You're right. I went to Woodstock, but the one that happened in California was the Monterey Pop Festival, and that right. was the first huge festival. And there, um, that's well documented and. Um, was a big event. As a matter of fact, I just watched a documentary on that this week. Um, but Woodstock uh, happened the year I graduated from high school, 1969. And um, somewhere around March or April, I don't know when it was, but my best friend Bob came running up to me with a an article he had clipped or an advertisement he had clipped out of a new magazine, Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone had just... I don't know when Rolling Stone started. I think in 67, roughly. And Bob says, we got to go to this. And we look at the list of people. And there were a couple of people we heard of. Um, obviously, uh, Jefferson Airplane. And um, there were some other people on there, Joan Baez. But there were a lot of people we never heard of. Um, I think um, Canned Heat we'd heard of. Um, we didn't know who Country Joe was. We didn't know who um, uh, Joe Cocker was. We, there are a lot of people we didn't know who, who they were. So I said, sure, Bob. Bob was the guy who got me in a lot of trouble. If you've read all chapters, he kept. <laughs> he still gets me in trouble. We're still friends. But we live far apart, so my wife puts up with it. But. The summer went along, and Bob kept talking about it, and I kept thinking, you know, the tickets were eighteen dollars for three days, and at the time we were making two and a quarter an hour, or two fifty an hour. Uh, I was driving a truck for an acoustical uh, company, driving tile to job sites, um, and that was not a lot of money. We we're going off to college; we we're all going to need money. He was going out to college in um, in uh, Nebraska, and our other friend who was going to go with us was going to Madison to uh, University of Wisconsin. I was going to go to Northeastern in Boston. We are all going in separate ways. We needed our money. But Bob was insistent, and he and Sam had bought their tickets. Um, I hadn't bought my ticket. I, I kept thinking, I'll get them when we get there. You know, get to the gate, I'll get it. You know, what's the big deal? So we get up like at 4 o'clock in the morning. We're leaving town at 5. The thing was two hours away. We figured, no problem. One of our other friends had left three or four days before, and he said, you guys are crazy. It's going to be big. you got to go early. And we thought, eh, we'll get there when we get there. And it was fine. We get there. We got, we got just on the outskirts in no time, but then we got to the outskirts. It was miles and miles and miles of cars. And we had brought coolers. We brought a hibachi. Um, we had a cooler full of beer, a cooler full of meat. Um, canned goods i mean we were we had these big backpacks with all this stuff we we could have lasted in the boundary waters for two weeks we were only going for three days and we watch as we get there nobody else is carrying anything i mean nobody has any food we go by these stores that look like locusts had been there there's nothing and um so we finally walked our way in i mean the last couple of miles took a couple of hours to get there and we found a spot on a hill behind the stage could hear a stage perfect the sound system was terrific sound we go out bounce into the hill 
out in front of it and then bounce back at us. It was, we had great sound. So we set up camp, walked into the festival, and I, I forgot to say, as we were walking through town before we went out, out of town to the festival, there was a middle-aged woman standing at the end of her driveway saying, tickets, tickets. So my friend said, you got to buy a ticket. We'll never get in. So I shell out the $18 to buy the ticket. Another mile or two down the road, we get to the gate. You could hear some guy going, it's a free concert. Hmm. Because they had already knocked down the fencing and people had just stormed onto the field. Yeah. So I'm it's kind of pissed that I spent $18, but I still have the tickets and I have a souvenir to prove right. that I was there. Right. So. so I guess historically speaking, you know, society and pop culture has made that festival what it was. Like, I think a prime example of this is uh, Carlos Santana. When he was there, he uh, may have, have done some things before he was uh, called on to perform, mm-hmm. and uh, perhaps he was called on earlier than expected, and he he recalls that his guitar neck was like a, a serpent trying to like chase after him as he was on stage. I think that was the level of, of where everybody was at, so... Does that historical context match your experience? (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) the movie and the video that you see makes it look like this gigantic party. Um, But it was pretty intense with that many people squeezed next to each other. I was pretty nervous. I mean, the one experience... One thing that really stood out, we had set up our tent, set up our campsite, and then gone down the hill and over under the grounds and climbed back up the hill, you know, found a spot to sit. And the mu- the act started, uh, Jimmy Havens and uh, uh, Ravi Shankar. Was <laughs> and th- so they were starting slowly. Uh, Jimmy Havens was, uh, Richie Havens was really good, but... Um, then the rain started. It started sprinkling. And at this, you know, there's a couple hundred thousand people on this field. And it starts raining. And your thought is, it's raining. I should get up and find shelter. Well, I thought that. Bob thought that. Sam thought that. And about a hundred thousand other people thought that. And we all stood up about the same time and started moving toward the exit. And at one point, my feet came off the ground. And I'm thinking, and not too long before that, the Who had had a concert in Cincinnati where there'd been a stampede and several people had been killed. I can't remember whether they were running out or running in. I think they were running in because it was festival seating. I think that's what it was. And as my feet left the ground, I started to panic. I thought, if anybody panics at this moment, a bunch of us are going to be dead. And the beauty of that weekend is that nobody panicked, but they could have. And that really made me nervous. So when you, that doesn't come out in any of the documentaries that I've seen. I mean, it's all this fun, you know, people playing air guitar, people taking hits on bongs, people drinking, people 
singing and having a great time. There was that. Right. There, there was danger. And speaking of the drugs, when Bob and I and Sam were sitting out there, um, we, we had gone way to the back of the crowd, which then people kept filling in, so we were in the middle of the crowd. And guy sat down next to me. He had this gigantic paper bag filled with marijuana. I mean, just, you know. And he, he was filling it into small plastic bags, and he was just throwing them at people. I mean, it was so, it, there were a lot of drugs. That was one of the more mild ones, but there, was, there were a lot of drugs there. Right, right. We brought beer. We were high school kids. Right. And that's when the, the drinking age was 18. and uh, We didn't care. You were of age. Yeah, we, we, we <laughs> actually, to tell you the truth, um, the year I turned 21 was the year they changed the drinking age to 18, okay. which made me sad. It's it probably a bad idea looking back. Yeah, I mean, but that, yeah, and then they changed it back. Right. So, yeah. All right. Well, Alan Savell is uh, definitely an interesting character at, at St. Ambrose, and I'm, I'm, I've, I've heard a lot of stories, bits, uh, bits and pieces in between. But glad we were able to sit down today and just talk about just life and stuff like that. Uh, thank you to KALA and David Baker. Um, I am Ryan Sandness, your host, and this has been the Who's Who of SAU.